So in the early years of World War II, it was clear that this war effort was going to significantly tax our own nation's resources. And so our government asked the people to make significant sacrifices. So tires were the first thing to be rationed in World War II. The military needed the tread on your Oldsmobile. They needed it for boots. They needed it for tires for military vehicles. They needed it for rubber hoses, for all the things they were building and creating. And for a nation in love with their automobiles, right, it was hard for, for families right, to put their Ford up on the blocks effectively for the rest of the war. But, but actually many families did that. You know, gasoline was next. Oil and gas was needed to fuel battleships and tanks. So three gallons a week, just think about that for a moment, three gallons a week was all many families received. Pleasure rides in the countryside were pretty much outlawed. By the summer of 1942, it wasn't just automobiles that were actually being rationed, factories turning into places to build war machines. No, actually bicycles were rationed. So little Johnny wasn't going to get a Schwinn for Christmas. No, they needed that metal for, for armored vehicles. They needed it for planes. Then it was food. It was sugar. Then coffee. No onyx. Followed by meats, canned fish, and cheese. Americans were instead urged to plant victory gardens. They were urged to plant these victory gardens so they could can their own vegetables and fruits and leave all the processing of the United States to serve military usage. It was actually interestingly during that time when Kraft's macaroni and cheese, when that became a nationwide sensation because it was cheap, it was supposedly filling, and it required very few ration points from these ration booklets every American received. And maybe you might be thinking it's because Kraft macaroni and cheese isn't really food. <laughs> and you might be right. Friends, these are just a number, just a myriad of the, of the sacrifices many Americans gave willingly in order to support the war effort. But if that's what so many were willing to sacrifice for a war... They themselves largely weren't fighting. A war being waged on beaches and on mountains thousands of miles away. I wonder what sacrifices this morning would you be willing to make for your own soul? What sacrifices would you be willing to make for your own soul? Because friend, there is a war being waged for your soul. The Bible says that war is on, and it's not referring to a war in Afghanistan or Syria or Yemen. It's talking about a cosmic war for the souls of humanity. And the Bible says, in fact, your soul, even right now, is on the line. What sacrifices are you making in order to protect your soul, to, to guard your soul? Or have you already decided that any sacrifice would simply be too much. Or maybe you might reason, you know what, the enemy is not all that bad. To live in enemy-occupied country, you know, the consequences, well, they won't be too great. The sacrifice isn't worth the cost. And so have you, in effect this morning, already surrendered your own soul? 
Well, friends, to think about these things, I want us to invite us again back to the Gospel of Mark. Let me encourage you to turn there if you have a Bible, the Gospel of Mark chapter 9. We're going to be verses 38 to 50. If you don't happen to have a Bible with you, uh, we do provide the text of the, of the message there right in the, the worship guide. So I think you can find it on page 9. Just if you look back to the page 9, you'll find the, the verses to our message this morning. And as we come to our text, remember Jesus is marching the disciples to Jerusalem He knows, Jesus does, there is this cosmic battle being waged. There is a war for the souls of men. And he's, in fact, marching to the very front lines of that fight. The problem we keep seeing is that it appears Jesus is the only one who's actually engaged in the fight. It seems he's the only one who really understands there's there's a war that's on. Because for the second time we saw last week, Christ has predicted his coming betrayal, his death, and his resurrection. But the disciples, they don't seem to want to hear it. They don't want to hear that they're headed for the beaches of Normandy. No, they have in their mind Jesus is going to be a king, and they're going to ride his coattails and become part of this new political elite. right? They're expecting something more like inaugural balls and palaces of honor. They're not prepared to be a soldier. Maybe a beach but not as a soldier to take the beach, but as one who would be served and kind of lay out at that beach. They've missed the memo the disciples have that a real war is afoot, and they are, in fact, marching with Jesus right into the heart of it. And it's because they're not aligned with Jesus' own mission that the disciples aren't prepared for the battle that's before them, nor do they seem to be willing to make the sacrifices necessary for them. And so once again in our text, Jesus is going to have to prepare them. And he's going to have to teach them. And so we pick up the story, chapter 9, beginning in verse 38. John said to him, referring to Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck And he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Friends, this is heavy stuff from Jesus. 
But it's precisely because the disciples don't understand that war that's being waged that Jesus fears for their souls. He knows the battles that lie before them. He knows how ill-prepared they are to face them. And so his basic point to them, I think, in this section is this. Real discipleship demands radical sacrifice. I think that's, in summary, what Jesus is teaching. Real discipleship demands radical sacrifice. That's what's called of disciples. If they're going to survive the coming war, they must be prepared to make such radical sacrifices. And I think there's two that we could sort of characterize from our text. And they're going to have to learn first, they're going to have to die to self-interest. They're going to have to first die to self-interest. That's the first sacrifice they're going to have to make from our text. And then second, they're going to have to die to self-indulgence. They're going to have to die to self-indulgence. And friends, those are just going to serve as our two basic points, those calls to die to self-interest and to die to self-indulgence. So let's dive into that first, that call to die to self-interest. Die, Jesus says, to self-interest. I think that's really the point of verses 38 to 41. And the scene opens there with John speaking. Now, of course, John, we've come across him before. He's part of that trusted triumvirate, right, with Peter and with his brother James, but it seems that that inner circle status that John enjoys, it seems that status, well, that's somewhat gone to his head because we find him saying to Jesus, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him. Now, who exactly is this mystery worker? We're not told. Clearly, the disciples don't know who he is. They just stumble upon this guy, evidently exercising demons. Is he some charlatan? Is he some wonder worker for hire? Is he trying to capitalize upon the fame of Jesus, much like some of those Jewish exorcists were in Acts 19, if you know that story with the sons of Sceva? Is that who this guy is? Is he like one of those individuals? Well, it's clear the disciples don't know the guy's name. But the important thing we're actually told is that whatever this guy is doing, he's actually doing it in Jesus' name. Notice that it says he's doing it in Jesus' name, casting out demons in your name. Now that we've seen that expression before, in your name, we saw it back last week, verse 37. We're going to see it again just down in verse 39. And in the Bible, to do something in one's name well, that's really function as their representative. It's to act with their authority. And we know that they're actually disciples beyond just the 12. So we know in Luke 10 that Jesus sends out the 72 as well. And there's more beyond that. And I think just given the fact that this man seems to be successfully driving out demons, and again, he's doing that most principally in Jesus' name, I think the text is suggesting for us, this guy's not a charlatan, but he's rather a true disciple of Jesus, just not one who was known to the 12. And we read, yet nonetheless, that John and the others were actually trying to stop this guy. Literally, they're trying to hinder him. They're trying to prevent him from doing this work. But why would they want to do that? Why would they want to prevent this disciple from, right, why would they want to halt him from, from attempting to do good gospel work, to free people from this life of misery by exercising these demons? Wouldn't they rather, 
we might expect to be excited to hear. Actually, it's not just the 12. There are, in fact, more of us. We've just come across another one, and look at the wonderful things he's doing. Would they be excited to know they're not alone? Would they might perhaps come up and try to support him and hug him and encourage him in their work? We might expect that, but that's not what they're doing, is it? Why are they not doing that? Well, John just blurts it out. He just tells us. Verse 38, because he was not following us. Notice what John doesn't say. John doesn't say, because he was not following you, Jesus, that's why we tried to stop him. That's not what John says. No, John just reveals his heart. He says, no, he was not following us. In other words, he was not part of our crowd. He was not a member of our group. He was not one of us. And I think right there, John's heart of self-interest betrays him. Now, who is John? We know John, often we speak of John as the great apostle of love. We do that from, from his many writings in the New Testament. But evidently, John wasn't always so loving. So it was he and his brother James, who Jesus called earlier in Mark 3, 17. He called them sons of thunder. So this gentle and meek idea we have of John, well, that wasn't always true. Apparently, John was at once a firebrand. And we actually know that because in Luke 9, it was, after all, John and his brother James who want Jesus to call down fire on those inhospitable Samaritans. And in Luke chapter 9, he wanted John did. He wanted to turn, right? He wanted to turn those Samaritans. He wanted to turn them all into like a, a modern day Sodom and Gomorrah. So in the next chapter as well, we're going to see in chapter 10, who is this John? Well, he's the one who's conspiring with his brother, going to Jesus on the side and saying, hey, listen, in this new kingdom, we want, this, we want the place on your right and on your left. So just with that in mind, think you got the disciples. They happen upon this man and they happen upon him and they witness what he's doing. They see how the crowds are taken to this man and they're thinking to themselves, like, who's this guy? What gives him the right to do these things? And why would this have particularly stung the disciples right here? Well, friends, remember, it was just earlier in the chapter, right? Verses 14 to 29. The disciples were publicly humiliated because they were unable to cast out demons. And yet here's this no-name disciple doing what they themselves were unable to do. And so what do they do? They tell him he can't do it. But instead of celebrating with the man, they're sulking in their own hearts. Why? Well, they're not the center of attention, are they? No, here they find themselves on the sidelines. You know, their attitude is basically like that of a child, right? A child who's got all of his toys. This child's having a grand old time playing with all of his toys. And he's happy for his friends to play with them, right? He's having fun. His friends are having fun. But then he sees his friends are having so much fun with his toys. His friends are even having more fun with his toys than he is. And he thinks, well, that's not fair, I'm the one who's supposed to have the most fun with my own toys. They are, after all, my toys. And so he grabs his toys and he walks off. Well, basically, the disciples are thinking to themselves, if we can't do this exorcism, no one else should be able to do these exorcisms either. I think that's basically the heart of the disciples here. 
They think such toys, such abilities, if you will, are reserved only for them. And so they must have been especially galled when the man didn't stop. Evidently, there was some discussion here. And they go to Jesus like, Jesus, you're going to have to stop the guy. He's not listening to us. You know, we, a little presumptuous, the disciples, like he should really be falling in line behind us. But he's not doing that. So you're going to have to put him in line. That's their attitude. They don't seem to grasp in that moment that the kingdom they're promoting is not God's. It's theirs. Nor do they seem to grasp that the kingdom of God is always larger than our personal experience of it. And what's doubly ironic is that what Jesus has just taught them in verse 35, that the one who would be first must be last of all and servant of all. And then in verse 37, the verse right before our section, Jesus says, whoever receives one such child, and remember child there refers to one with the status of a child, right? One who is lowly and insignificant in the eyes of the world, much like a no-named itinerant disciple of Jesus, right? One who receives such a person, such a one in my name, Jesus says, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. And yet here they are in the very next verses, rejecting the very one working in Jesus's name and acting in Jesus's name. You know, there's a parallel story in, in the Old Testament, Numbers 11, where Moses and Joshua and all the elders are at the tent of meeting. And it's there that Joshua hears there are these two guys back in the camp, and they're prophesying to all the people. These guys named Eldab and Medab. And Joshua's response, what does he do? Well, he runs to Moses, and he says, he says my Lord, stop them. He says, Numbers 11, stop them. To which Moses very deftly replies, are you jealous for my sake? Joshua, whose name are you really concerned? Is it really my name you're concerned about? Or are you concerned about a different name? And he responds then, would that all of the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Right? Moses grasps, it's the message not the messenger, right, that matters. It's what John the disciple, uh, John the Baptist, his own disciples, they have much of the same instinct when they see Jesus' star rising and John's star setting. They go to John and they say, look, referring to Jesus, he is baptizing, and they say, all, all are going to him. They're all going to him. And yet John is able to find joy in Jesus' own ascendance. My friend, I wonder, can you, can you find joy in the ascendance of others? Can you find joy in the ascendance of others? Or are you like the disciples here? Do you quietly resent it? Do you resent it? Do you actually work against it? Because you're not at the center of it. You know, it's easy, to, I think, to be, to be jealous of the accolades of others, to crave the success of others. But Jesus is saying that attitude has no place in God's kingdom. It has no place in his kingdom. You know, back in Mark 3, 22, the, uh, the scribes, when they witnessed Jesus cast out demons, Jesus do what they themselves could not do. Do you remember what they attributed that work to? They called him the, effectively the son of the devil, 
They said this was evil spirits working within Jesus. They called him the prince of demons. In effect, the disciples are being just like those religious leaders. Once again, we're seeing here, they're infected with that same yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod, that yeast of pride and self-interest that's worked its way deep into their hearts. It doesn't take much to expose it. Friends, the advancement of God's kingdom is more important than your personal ambition. The advancement of God's kingdom ought always to be more important than one's personal ambition. Friends, that's just a great way. You want to know how to pray for me? Right, pray that for me. Pray that I would always be far more concerned with the advancement of God's kingdom than I would for my own personal ambition. Like, just because I'm a pastor doesn't mean I'm somehow immune to jealousy. Doesn't mean I'm unaware of what's happening around me, who the Lord is raising up. Doesn't mean I'm, I'm unaware of the success of other pastors or, or I don't covet the size or strength of their ministries or the books they publish or whatever it might be. I'm not immune to such jealousy and that jealousy ruins men and it ruins ministries. And it's ruining the disciples right here. But friends, in the same way that the advancement of God's kingdom is more important than any one person's personal ambition, it's also more important than a church's concern for its own reputation. That's also more important than a church's concern for its own reputation. I think that might perhaps be a good warning for us as a church, as UBC. You know, because there can be a kind of spiritual pride that can well up in our own souls, a kind of attitude that says, hey, you know what, we're trying to think really careful about doing church right. And maybe we think we've kind of cornered the market on what it means to do church right in our area, right? Expositional preaching, we're like, check, got that. Meaningful membership, check. Biblical leadership, check. Right practice of leadership, right? Rather, Lord's Supper, discipline, all these things. Discipleship, yeah, we, we've got all that stuff checked. Like, we got it, we're about that. And we can keep going with these things. Perhaps we're doing right. And if we're not careful, as we check those boxes and as we look around and say, oh, they haven't quite figured it out, we can start to walk around with our own kind of spiritual swagger. And we can look a whole lot like these disciples. And yet we know from Proverbs, right, such pride is what will precipitate our own fall, our own destruction. It's one of the reasons why if, if the Lord continues to, to bless us with, with people and resources, I think one of the ways we fight against this pride is just to be committed. Yeah, we're not going to go to multiple services. We're not going to go to multiple locations. Now, that's theologically, I think, in part because a congregation of necessity has to gather. And if it can't gather together, it can't be a biblical congregation, right? To assemble as an assembly means you must be able to assemble, all right, so there's that issue. But practically, you know, it's easy for that kind of growth if we're not careful to fuel our own pride, right? To, to want to become larger and more influential, to, to have the reputation in a community that we're a church that matters. And if churches aren't careful, if we're not careful, we can, we can start to drift and we can end up like promoting our own brand, seeking to gobble up other congregations, making sort of them separate sites of UBC so we can kind of advertise our label, we can promote our brand and, and model, you know, whatever we want to model, put that out like, hey, look at us. Well, that's the kind of spiritual pride we have to be careful of because it can be very easy in our own hearts to convince ourselves that we're really about promoting Jesus 
when deep down we're really about promoting ourselves. Right? It's not his name. It's our name that bothers us. And how can you tell the difference? Well, just one simple way is to ask yourself, do you rejoice when gospel work succeeds? Or do you only rejoice when it succeeds at your own hands? Do you rejoice when it succeeds? Or do you really only rejoice when it succeeds at your own hands? Jesus knows how destructive that kind of pride and self-interest can be in people. And so what does he say? He says, don't stop them. Right? Don't be obstructionist. Don't be ridiculous, Jesus is saying. In part because I think he's saying this one is a true disciple. He says, for one who does a mighty work in my name will, be able, will not be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. I think Jesus there is saying, one can't do a marvelous work in Jesus' name if they haven't already welcomed Jesus, if they're not already walking with Jesus. And that's part of what he's communicating. And he'll say, listen, this one is not against us, but for us. And then he'll conclude with that promise that to receive this one will earn Jesus' reward. And that's what he's highlighting there in verse 41. Verse 41, which literally reads, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name, that ESV sort of conflates that with because you belong to Christ, but it's literally in, sort of in my name implied. Because you belong to Christ, truly I tell you, he will never lose his reward. Now some will say Jesus never called himself the Messiah. Rather, that title Messiah or Savior was a title foisted upon him by, by all of his disciples that came later and wanted to turn him in to a Messiah. But notice right here, Jesus refers to himself as the Christ, the Messiah. He doesn't just accept that title from others. Right here, he actually asserts that about himself. But notice what the verse is saying. It's really promising here. It's promising that a disciple who shows just the slightest bit of hospitality and support to a fellow disciple won't lose his reward. So just it's worth noting this, this notion, right, this notion of a cup of water, a cup of water, it actually has nothing to do with charity in the broad sense of the word. It has nothing directly to do with acts of mercy to non-Christians, though out of love for neighbor, it's great to do acts of mercy to non-Christians. That's just not what this verse is teaching. No, this is a promise that the Christian who receives and shows hospitality to a fellow Christian worker can be assured of God's own reward. That's what Jesus is teaching here. And while that would be especially important in the early days of the church when you didn't have institutions and Disciples just couldn't trust that they could move on to a new city and get a hotel and be received somewhere and they'd have a church to speak at, right? Such hospitality would be critical for the work of the gospel to continue. But friends, that's no less important today. It's no less important today. You know, how does one do this though? How does one exercise this kind of hospitality and charity to others? One very simple but very profound way, right, to, to start living this out is actually to give to the church's budget. Yeah, it's budget season. That's true, we're thinking about a budget. Well, you may not be aware, nearly a quarter of UBC's budget is actually committed to helping serve gospel work and ministry work outside these walls. 
right? Missionaries and support overseas, for example. It goes to such evangelism and support of workers across the globe. And when you give to it and when you support it, you are, albeit a little indirectly, but nonetheless meaningfully, you're fulfilling these verses. But even more directly, I mean, a verse like this ought to encourage you to know the kind of supported workers we are giving to as a church, to pray for them, to reach out to them. We've tried to make that easier in, our, in the new member directory that we talked about last Sunday night. There's actually some new pages toward the back that just list our supported workers and what they're doing. We've added that section. You can read about them. And when they're visiting here, you can show hospitality to them. You know, maybe it means you have them over for a meal. Maybe it means you say, listen, we're going to watch your kids. We're going to give you a gift card so you can get out, so you can kind of recoup and, and you can recharge for the work. The promise, though, the great promise is that even the smallest acts, even the seemingly most insignificant acts of identification and service, right? A cup of water. Even that, Jesus promises, does not go unnoticed, even if you feel like there's very little you're able to do, whatever that little bit is, is rewarded. Jesus sees it, he knows it, and he rewards it. That's in part how Jesus is saying disciples need to learn to die to self-interest by contributing and by promoting and by investing and celebrating in the work of others. But if they're to survive this battle for their own souls, they got to only, not only die to self-interest, they actually have to die to self-indulgence as well. And that really brings us to our second point, this, this other imperative that really makes up 42 through 50, this call to die to self-indulgence. And in 42, he's going to warn them about causing others to sin. Notice that, that phrase, cause to sin, that's really the phrase that ties much of this section together. We see it in 42, it's going to repeat it again in 43, 45, 47, and in 42, he's going to warn them against causing others to sin. And then 43 to 47, he's going to really warn them about what would cause them individually, personally to sin. Now, in verse 42, Jesus refers to one of these little ones. And remember from the scene before, maybe he still has that child in his arms when he's still in that home. Maybe that's where he still is. But remember the child there that he's speaking of? You know, he's holding a child, but that child is a referent to a little lowly one of insignificant status, the status of a child. And so here, this little one, don't think so much child, think least of these, is how that word can also be translated elsewhere, the least of these. So Jesus, what he's doing in verse 42, when he says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, and then he goes on to talk about what's going to happen to them with that millstone. What Jesus is doing is he's highlighting the terrible peril that will fall upon one who leads even the least of Jesus' disciples. Even the least of his disciples. Even if you lead that one into sin, this is the peril that follows. So if verse 41 really speaks to the reward for those who aid followers of Jesus, verse 42 speaks to the punishment for those who would oppose followers of Jesus, who would lead them astray. And friends, keep in mind, the, the Israelites, they were not a seafaring people, right? Maybe a day at the beach may have been fun for them, but they would not go out on boats. Yeah, you had the Sea of Galilee, you had some fishermen, but on the whole, they were not a seafaring people. And so, to Jesus to speak about judgment in the way he does... 
of being dropped into the waters with this giant millstone around one's ankle, to have that send you plunging into the deep, right, fighting and kicking to no avail until finally you give up and you're just there at the bottom, your body listlessly going back and forth and swaying, right, in the currents. Like, that would have been a horrific image to an Israelite. And Jesus is using that image because he wants to highlight the severity and importance of what he's teaching. The danger of what's coming to those who would again lead these spiritually young and lowly into sin. Now friends, this is one of the reasons, I've been asked this before, this is one of the reasons where sometimes I will actually call out false teachers by name. Sometimes call them out by name. It's not because I'm trying to be cruel. It's not because I'm trying to be uncharitable or I'm trying to be self-righteous by lifting myself up, by pushing them down. No, it's because false teachers lead sheep to false behaviors. Like that's sometimes why you have to call them out because when they teach falsely, it leads to false behavior. They lead them into sin, cause them to stumble. And this is exactly what Paul does. When Paul knows there are vulnerable sheep and he knows there are wolves among them, he will call them out. So for example, he speaks to Demas and warns about Demas in 2 Timothy 4. Vigilus and Hermogenes in 2 Timothy 1. Hymenaeus and Alexander in 1 Timothy 1. Philetus in 2 Timothy 2. Well, friends, if we just think about the kind of things that can lead young, often spiritually immature believers into sin, as we think about the kind of teaching even that can do that, we think of teaching around, around prosperity, modern notions of the prosperity gospel, around modern notions of sexuality, Right? It's why we need to be warned of teachers like Joel Osteen or Joyce Meyer. It's why we need to be warned of teachers when we think about sexuality, whether it's Andy Stanley or, or someone like Jen Hatmaker. Like we need to be warned that they're teaching anti-biblical things that will lead others to sin and stumble and potentially fall away. But equally, Jesus is saying, listen, reflect on your own behaviors. Reflect on your own behaviors could it be that your own behaviors are leading others to sin? Could you be causing others to stumble? You know, in these polarizing times, just think for a moment, right? Think in the last week, month. Think about your own social media. Think of your posts. Think of the content of those posts. Think of the tone of those posts. Maybe the response you gave to some of those posts. Friends, whether it is about COVID or whether it's been about the election, you know, there's a tendency to think that because we have the freedom to post whatever we want, right, we don't have to really stop and think about the effect that that post might have on others. Sometimes we stand up in members meetings and we speak very bluntly, not reflecting on how that speech will reflect on a brand new Christian for whom that's their first church conference. Maybe we think, you know, social media, because we're not the author of something, we've just reposted it. Like somehow that gives us like qualified immunity, right? It really doesn't matter. We, we just reposted it. We didn't write it. But as Christians, we got to have the responsibility to, to consider beyond what we're free to do and just ask, yeah, but is this good to do? Is this loving to do? Will this actually spur younger, immature Christians on to love and good works? Will this build them up? Or might it simply provoke fear and anxiety and anger that would lead weaker and less mature Christians into sin? We're culpable for that, the Bible says. Now, our, our culture is not great 
about taking responsibility for others. I mean, we have a hard enough time taking responsibility for ourselves. But Jesus is saying, in such simple and mundane things, it's how you speak, the places you frequent, the things you watch, the things you may drink, and where you may drink it, the way you spend your money, how you speak to your children, the way we speak about others, all of that behavior is actually charting the eternal destiny of not just your soul, but others who are watching and others who are observing. Friends, is that soul being charted toward heaven or is it being directed elsewhere? Are you causing them to spiritually fumble or is your behavior causing them to spiritually flourish? But it's not just others, right? Jesus is saying, listen, yeah, you gotta think about others, but think about your own life for a moment as well, he says. Consider your own life. And he's gonna go on, verse 43, he's gonna speak of the hand, he's gonna speak of the foot, he's gonna speak of the eye, verse 47. And in doing that, I think what he's doing is he's just highlighting really the totality of life. He's speaking of what we view, of what we do, of where we go. And he's saying if any of those things cause you to sin, then cut it off. That simply cut it off. Now, just to be clear though, Jesus is not literally saying you should walk out and if you're sinning by regularly going to a particular place and doing what you ought not to do, he's not saying like amputate your foot. Now, like origin of Alexandria, sadly took Jesus here at face value and he did. He emasculated himself thinking that's what Jesus called him to do. That's actually not what this text says. It's Jesus using hyperbole He's using hyperbole. He's already taught back in Mark 7 that it's what's within, right? It's, when, it's what's in our own hearts that defiles us. So you can be sort of one-handed, one-footed, one-eyed in sin just as egregiously as anyone else. That doesn't finally take care of the sin. He's not talking about physical mutilation. He's talking about spiritual mortification, right? A mortification of sin in your life. And Jesus is saying, if you're going to follow me, you've got to get really serious when it comes to your fight with sin. You've got to get serious about your fight with sin. Friends, that is the struggle of every generation because it is the struggle of every Christian because it is the struggle of every heart. Not our generation uniquely, not the generation before us. Every generation. Discipleship with Jesus, right, how we follow Jesus, that discipleship is difficult. That discipleship demands sacrifice. And our self-indulgent hearts, they're not helped as we live in this self-indulgent age. We just don't like that word sacrifice. And it's why Jesus is, again, warning us, like we need to be especially vigilant. We need to keep a close watch on our own hearts. We know from our heart, Right, flows the springs of life. It's why Paul will instruct Timothy to keep a close watch on himself and on his teaching. He's saying, don't just do that once, right? Persist, he says in it. You gotta persist in that work. Because by doing so, you're gonna save not only yourself, but your hearers. And you can hear echoes of this. The concern for, for Timothy's own soul, but also for the souls of all those he teaches and those who are watching him. Friends, this daily vigilance, like this is a hard thing. It's easy to grow lazy. It's easy to say, you know what, we're really serious about sin. And so we create these barricades to the front door of our heart. But then we leave the back door cracked open. 
we leave that back door cracked, uh, cracked open. And so, so sin gets in through that back door and it comes in, comes into our study, comes into the den, finds its way into the bedroom, eventually gets into the kitchen, the family room. It gets everywhere because sin is not content with part of us until it has all of us. We can barricade that front door, but we leave the back door open. And, friends, Satan is no dummy. Satan is playing the long game for your own soul. He doesn't need to convince you outright that Jesus isn't the Christ. He just needs you to care a little bit less. And he needs you to care about the world a little bit more. And day after day, year after year, like the frog in the water as he turns up the heat, you won't notice it until one day it's too late. Jesus is looking at you. He's speaking to you. He's saying, don't coddle sin. Don't entertain sin. You've got to eradicate sin. There are no half measures, Jesus is saying. That's what this hyperbole about amputating parts of the body. There are no half measures when it comes to sin. Right in the classic words of John Owen, right? Be killing sin or it be killing you. Literally is what we're being taught. Friends, it is not legalistic to care about holiness. It's not legalistic to care about your friend's holiness who professes faith in Christ, right? We're called to strive after holiness with which no one will see the Lord, Hebrews 12. This world doesn't need more hip Christians. It needs more holy Christians. It doesn't need you to get with it. It needs you to get with God. That's what this world most needs from you. It doesn't need you to to simply strive after the great things. It needs you every day to be holy about the little things, about the small things. Sanctification, friends, it doesn't come just by surrender. It comes by divinely enabled striving and straining. You know, so many of us, too many of us, I think, expect the Christian life to be like skipping along the beach. You know, you got the warm sun on your body, the cool breeze in your hair, the, the cool waters at your toes. We think the Christian life is like that. The Christian life, yeah, it has moments like that, but it's also a lot of the time it's like slogging through mud. It's just, it, it, kids, it can be hard work. And there can be no negotiating with sin, Jesus is saying. We've got to do that hard work because if we're not intent at extinguishing those little brush fires in our heart, he's saying one day we, might, we may find ourselves exposed to hell's flames. If we don't extinguish those little brush fires as they grow in our heart, they may erupt and one day we might find ourselves exposed to hell's flames. And that's the stark reality that Jesus paints. Right, Three different times he speaks of hell. Verse 43, what does he call it? But the unquenchable fire. And in verse 48, highlighting what was read to us, what Hayden read to us from Isaiah 66, from verse 24, right, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. I know it's not fashionable to talk of hell. It's not fashionable to talk of judgment. But just to be clear, it's never been fashionable to talk of hell. It's never fashionable to talk of judgment. You know, Bart Ehrman is one guy who's made a career out of debunking historic Christian teaching, and he published a book earlier this year, Heaven and Hell, A History of the Afterlife. You know, I remember hearing about it on NPR, and then I read some about it. And if you're not familiar with Bart Ehrman, basically all of his books are the same, just to let you know. Christians are dead wrong. 
I know because I used to be one, but now I'm enlightened and so can you. That's basically how his books go. And in this one, he's effectively teaching, you know what? Hell is not real. Maybe there's a heaven, but hell, this notion of, a, of an afterlife of torment and the rest, just not in the Bible. Interestingly, I'm just like, well, I went, I went to see his book, went up to Barnes & Noble, looked through it. There's no scriptural index in the back. That should always be a warning to you, including Christian publishers. If they don't take the time to put a scriptural index in the back, that's a bad sign. He's got no scripture index in the back. He actually, I read through everything I could. There's not one reference to this verse anywhere. This doesn't really deal with it, which is convenient if you want to make a point that hell doesn't really exist. All that to say, Christians should take no sick delight in what Jesus is teaching, a place of eternal torment. I mean, humanly speaking, hell is exceedingly hard. If you've lived life long enough, you know this life is hard. This life is often hard enough on its own that there could be a place exceedingly worse that extends for eternity that ought to be too much for our hearts to really grapple with. To know, for me to know that I have friends and I have loved ones, if this is true, who are there? I don't know how to wrap my head around that. I don't think I want at one level to know how to wrap my head around that. But the Christian response is not to therefore reject those things that we don't like. You know, theology, we don't, we don't make it by opinion polls. Because the truth of something is never determined simply by how we feel about it. Friends, if the truth was determined by what we feel about something, I could eat chocolate and bacon and peanut butter all day and never gain a pound. Unfortunately, that just doesn't work. But I go to Smitty's and I try to mix those things up as much as I can at any rate. Friends, the reality is Jesus, nobody spoke more forcefully about judgment to come than he did. He did not preach an easy, affirming universalism. Jesus never suggested we all get a second chance not to worry about this life. He knows a reckoning is coming and so his warning is an act of love. We need to hear him. We need to listen to him. He couldn't be any clearer. He is saying, better to enter eternal life maimed than to end up whole in hell. He's saying, there is no sin in your life worth going to hell for. Friend, that, ple that fleeting pleasure of yours, whatever it is, however many of them you have, is that fleeting pleasure really worth an eternity of misery? Is it possibly worth that? Now, if you're a Christian, that fight begins when you feel that fight. It begins by being honest about it, by confessing it to God, often by confessing it to another brother or sister and bringing them in so they can help fight with you. But, you know, if you've come and you're non-Christian this morning, if you feel the burden of your sin, well, your response is very much the same. It is to recognize that your sin before a holy God, it's worthy of judgment. We have a hard time with that, but that's largely because we don't understand the consequences of our sin before a holy and infinitely good God. You know, in any court of law, the punishment is always proportional to the crime. 
And so if Jesus is teaching that this is the punishment deserved, then it means if we're struggling with it, we're really struggling with the nature of the crime we've committed. And we're underestimating it. We don't quite appreciate it as Jesus is telling we should. But if you come to feel that and you know your need of forgiveness, Jesus is throwing his arms out. He's saying, the best news for you is that you don't have to work it off. You don't have to pay it off because I've already done that for you. I have gone to the cross. I have laid my life down and I have paid the debt of your sin. I've done it in your stead. I have borne the burden of that sacrifice. I have paid that debt for you. And by repenting of your sin and by believing in me, by trusting in me, you can have eternal life. And just to prove that I'm going to be good on that deal, I'm going to rise from the grave. Proof that I've paid that debt and that you can be with me for eternity. And if you've never heard that message, that's the wonderful news of the gospel. And it's made available to all who see their need, repent and believe and come to him and follow him. Friends, part of how we avoid these fires of condemnation, Jesus is going to say we avoid those fires of condemnation by embracing the fires of purification, the fires of consecration. It seems that's what he's getting at with these rather enigmatic two last verses, right? Verse 49 and 50, when he says in verse 49, for everyone will be salted with fire, a more obscure verse. The other gospels don't mention this verse, teaching of Jesus. Maybe they were a little confused by it as well, which gave me a little hope as I was studying the text this week. But you know, Leviticus 2.13 references how Old Testament sacrifices were seasoned with salt. Salt here, I think, speaks to consecration as we offer our own bodies, Romans 12.1, right, into as living sacrifices. So salt, sort of consecration, as we offer our bodies as living sacrifices to the Lord. And yet in this life, we know the trials that come. They're presented as a kind of fire that purifies. So we think of 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. So I think what Jesus is saying in these last verses, what he's getting at is he's saying, listen, instead of giving your bodies, the members of your bodies, over to sin, we're rather to consecrate them as a living sacrifice to God. And that as we endure the fiery trials, that will come upon us. We know as we endure that it's through them and through those trials that we actually come to inherit life that refiner's fire that purifies us, that builds endurance and hope that doesn't disappoint, as John was talking about this morning. So have salt in yourselves, Jesus is going to go on to say. And there, salt is the catch word, but he seems to flip the image, much like Jesus uses it in Matthew 5. And he's saying the saltiness of our lives is actually to be witnessed in how we give of ourselves to others. Have salt in yourselves, Jesus says, and then he sort of finishes it off and he clears it by saying, by being at peace with one another. And right there, I think Jesus just tied a bow on this whole big section. So to a people, remember, all the disciples, they're concerned with who's the greatest. To those racked by jealousy and by self-interest, Jesus is saying it's actually a life of service to others, a life of sacrifice toward God. That's actually what promotes peace within the fellowship. 
And friends, if you're a member of UBC, I think this is the great promise that's held out to us. This is the opportunity we actually have as a church. Because right now, our world, our nation, does not feel at peace. So be at peace with one another. They don't know how to do that. It feels like war. So this election season, we all feel it. There's a part of you, if if you were discouraged at all, there was a part of you that's like, I'll deal with discouragement if we can just be done and have it over with, right? You've got both sides when it comes to the election pursuing sort of scorched earth politics. So just this week, I was reading on the one side, you had a primetime news reporter declaring that all Trump supporters on national news, all Trump supporters were racist. He was comparing them to Middle East terror groups. So you've got that kind of rhetoric on one side. On the other side, you've got our former president like retweeting gifs that Biden's a pedophile and you've got his supporters referring to all the left as human scum. I mean, this is like the low that seems every week we just descend a bit deep and descend a bit deeper into. And if we fall into the same pattern of the world, recognize we'll never be able to point men and women to a different world. Never be able to do that if we just follow the patterns of this world. But if rather we salt this world by dying to self-interest and to self-indulgence, by living differently as a congregation, by loving differently as a congregation, which John himself, by John 13, 34, and 35, right, he seems to have gotten it later in life. Well, then we can offer a compelling picture of the kingdom that Jesus has come to usher in. The kingdom that invites all of us to partake in And real discipleship requires radical sacrifice, right? Jesus is saying there's a war being waged for souls. And it's very possible to win the war, to win the war for our bodies during this COVID season. It's even possible to win the war for our nation as we think about politics and elections. And we can win all of those wars and yet still lose the war for our souls. And waging that battle begins, again, Jesus says, with dying to self-interest and to dying to self-indulgence. Friends, will such sacrifices be worth it? Jesus is asking, is your soul worth it? Let's pray. Oh God, we pray that we would hear the words of Jesus. We recognize they probably confront us in many ways similar to how they would have confronted the disciples. Perhaps hard to hear, perhaps offensive to hear, humiliating at the same time to hear as our own hearts are exposed. And yet, God, we do pray that you would drive your word deep into us and build us into the kind of community that would be salt and light and radical service. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.